You're listening to the UI podcast by the Swedish Institute of International Affairs. Well, ladies and gentlemen, it gives me a great pleasure to welcome you all to this seminar here at the Swedish Institute of International Affairs. This seminar will present and discuss the findings of a new report from the European Think Tank Network on China, ETNC, that analyzes the role that political values play in Europe-China relations today. And a special emphasis will be given to uh, the policy of Sweden. The seminar will be moderated by Henrik Aspengren, who is a research fellow here at UV, and he will also introduce the panelists. So without further ado, Henrik, the floor is yours. Thank you, Christer. Um, so a warm welcome to everyone. Can you hear me? Yeah, good. Uh, warm welcome to everyone. Uh, as Christer mentioned, uh, this is an occasion to launch a report, uh, Political Values in Europe-China Relations. Um, the report is a res the result of a collaborative effort among uh, the member institutions of the European Think Tank Network on China. The report was originally published in December 2018, and over the last months or so, it has been presented at various venues and locations around Europe. And in addition to being part of the network, um, it also, has also been part of the coordinating and editorial group of the report, as well as uh, we have contributed as well with two chapters. Uh, and we will discuss this uh, at length um, just in a little bit. Uh, we have an eminent panel to discuss the findings of the report and place it in a wider context. Um, we regret that Anna Michalski, who is one of the co-authors of the, of the chapter on the Swedish angle, couldn't make it for family um, uh, reasons, but we have a, a great replacement, and that is Nicola Nyman. Uh, Nicola is a research fellow uh, at UV. Uh, she works on uh, US-China and US-Japan relations, uh, and um, her most uh, recent publication uh, is about comparative exceptionalism, um, and you will help us broaden the perspective from Europe also to bring in the US angle on the topic. We have Tim Reeling, who is uh, the, one of the editors of the report. Uh, you have also written the chapter on the EU institutions approach to China. Um, and you have also been re uh, presenting the report at the par European Parliament and elsewhere. So warm welcome to you. And also we have Viking Buman, who is an analyst at UV, also the uh, coordinator of um, uh, uh, the Globe, uh, Observat Stockholm Observatory, Observatory uh, for Global China, and you're currently involved in several China-related uh, projects at the Institute. So um, I would also like to say that um, I will give Tim, uh, you will start with the sort of 15 to 20 minute presentation uh, of the findings of the report. Then Viking uh, and Nicola will, will get about 10 minutes each. Um, and Viking um, will contribute with the Swedish angle and, and Nicola will contribute with some broader perspectives. 
Um, I will then ask each of you after your presentations a couple of questions, one or two, before opening up uh, for the rest of the audience uh, to ask questions. Um, I remind you to try to formulate a succinct um, question, and I will, for the, with respect to the rest of the audience and the, um, I will sort of intervene if I see you meander off or, or, or having a broad reflection on the state of uh, current affairs in general. Um, also, if you would like to tweet, you can use this hashtag uh, here behind me. And I also like to mention that uh, we will record this um, uh, discussion uh, for a UI podcast. Uh, but the question and answer session will not be recorded. So um, for those of you who, who, who wouldn't like your questions to be recorded, um, uh, it, it won't be recorded. Uh, and now uh, to, the, to the main topic of today, this report and the findings. And I'll give the word to Tim, please. Yes, uh, good evening to, from my side as well. Thank you for coming. Uh, it's a great honor and pleasure to be able to present here for the first time to a Swedish audience uh, the results of our report. And before I do so, allow me to say maybe a few words about the European Think Tank Network on China as such. The, institute, the network itself is, uh, uh, consists of 19 research think tanks from all over Europe. Uh, there's just one think tank or one research institute per country. Uh, we, all ha we have uh, very often I, um, asked why we have not more. Well, it uh, depends really on, on the applications we get from uh, the different states. We currently have two more applications, so hopefully the network is going to expand by two more uh, by the end of this year. Um, it works on a rotating presidency basis, and UI had uh, the honor to be uh, in this position in 2018, so we spearheaded actually the coordination of the report and the network as such. The network basically works on a bottom-up approach. So what, if you have the time, download the report, or if you already have done so from UI's website, you will find uh, chapters from each country, just three, four pages, a brief summary that actually provides you an overview of the different member states' relations with China at this point. Uh, and this is also how the network runs. So we meet twice a year and exchange the views of, uh, that we have from the different states and the experiences we get. Because we believe that what's happening in Sweden today might be useful to know for other countries that may experience the same in six months, or we may go through uh, issues we have with China or opportunities we have with, with China that other countries uh, uh, had a year ago, a uh, year and a half. So this is an effort to sort of coordinate and exchange information and perspectives. And as a result of each uh, year's effort, we prepare one report that focuses on one specific topic, and in this and in last year it has been political values in Europe-China relations. 
And with that, I would like to introduce you to the main findings uh, in a comparative perspective. So I'll not draw that much attention on EU institutions that I've been working on myself, but rather introduce to you what we found across the continent. So what do we mean when we talk about uh, political values? Well, already that has been a very contentious issue among the, me the members of the network, because there's different perspectives all over Europe. But we've agreed on a core definition that includes three main values, and that's democracy, human rights, and the rule of law. Um, if you have the time and read a, a couple of chapters here and there, you'll find that in some chapters, uh, the authors in the report include even other values, but uh, on the comparative side, since all the chapters relate their findings to those three values, I'll uh, restrict it to those three. So we've been asking mainly two research questions. The first one was, what role do political values play in Europe's relations with China? So that first research question mainly looked on European policies towards China. And the second is, does China have any influence on understanding political values in Europe? So that actually looks on Chinese influence, Chinese impact here in Europe. So what did we find? Let me go to the first research question. What you find here is a map of Europe. You will see uh, that there are still uh, too many countries blank that we would like to fill in future reports. Um, but you find uh, also uh, the different shapes of blue telling you a bit about the different patterns that European countries adopt. And in essence, uh, you can see there are four different uh, patterns, four different types of policies European countries uh, are doing. And that is active and vocal, active and discreet, passively supportive, and passive and potentially or occasionally counteractive. That's how we term them. I'm not going through all the countries one by one. We can do that, of course, in the discussion. I'm happy to answer your questions if you have in specific countries, but maybe uh, give you a rough idea on how we came to those categorizations. So we looked particularly at five uh, channels or five uh, venues. One was uh, three of them bilateral, two of them multilateral. The bilateral were megaphone diplomacy. So do the, does a specific country actually uh, speak out in public about, say, human rights violations in China? Discrete diplomacy is the second channel. That means, do, is human rights, democracy, and the rule of law a priority for a specific European country in its closed-door meetings with its Chinese counterparts? And the third uh, angle uh, bilateralities are the cooperative projects, as we call them. So that means, is there any assistance, for example, for China's judiciary? Uh, is there any exchange that tries to promote the rule of law? Or are there human rights trainings uh, provided on a bilateral basis? The multilateral framework, we looked at how a specific country contributes to the EU policy action in those fields. And secondly, whether there's ad hoc multilateral activism outside the EU. For example, are you signing up to statements uh, with other countries to defend human rights in China? Next, um, uh, let me say something maybe a bit about the reasons that we believe are behind uh, the fact that European countries approach those issues so differently. 
And we found mainly three reasons. Uh, historical legacy, economy, and Chinese pressure. Let me start maybe with historical legacy, because this is something that we found probably the most surprising. Um, we thought that uh, changes in government would disrupt, actually, historical legacies. So if a new government comes in, it will have new policies. So why matter about historical legacies? Maybe we were quite surprised to see that this does exist. Look at Italy's recent election. That's uh, very likely to have an impact on Italy's China policy. Look at the Czech Republic. It used to be the most China-critical country of all European EU member states. And now you have a rather China-friendly president with Milos Seman. But we found a surprising persistence of historical legacies. And let me maybe uh, display to you uh, one graph. So what does that say? It, um, you see, on the one hand, uh, that we sort of rated uh, the commitment of European states to defend human rights, democracy, and the rule of law in China. And at the same time, we looked at when these countries democratized after World War II. So if there was a country, if a country was already a democracy before the war or during the war, we still kept it here with 1945. Um, and what you see is that it's quite apparent that all the democracies meaning democracies uh, that uh, democratized before 1970, show, with the exception of Italy, a much, more, a much stronger stance, actually, in defense of human rights, democracy, and the rule of law in, with China. Also, if you look a bit into the discourses within countries, you find that historical legacies play a quite important role, and maybe just give you one Maybe not that intuitive example here. If we look at Portugal, um, Portugal is one of the countries that is not publicly standing up, not very actively promoting democracy, human rights, and the rule of law. And very often the justification that you hear from Portuguese sources is, well, we are a post-colonial uh, uh, country. We've been interfering so much into countries around the world. Yes, we do believe in, 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 those, in this triad of, of uh, political values, but well, we don't believe that it's very conducive to actively support them. So making uh, uh, explicit reference to historical legacies, historical uh, lessons they've learned from their own history. And it comes to uh, the second factor, the uh, economic uh, impact. That uh, is obviously one that we were uh, looking at straight away because we believe that economic relations had an impact on political values here as well. But, and it turned out it does, but in a very different way than we expected. Let me show you again another slide. So what you see here is we looked at uh, trade relations, and, we, and uh, the conventional wisdom goes a bit that uh, by close trade relations with China, you would be sort of traded off or, uh, or bought off uh, a strong commitment to political values. And uh, we were quite surprised to see the opposite being the case. So statistically, uh, the likelihood that uh, a European country take a strong stance on democracy, human rights, and the rule of law increases if it has close relation, trade relations with China. So by trend, the higher the share of Chinese trade in the exports uh, uh, of a country, the higher the likelihood, again, statistically, 
that a country takes a tough stance on political values. That's certainly not what we expected. And then so we asked ourselves, how can that be? And uh, we also looked at the prosperity of uh, European countries measured by per capita GDP. And we found that there was even a stronger relationship here. Um, so we are not saying that trade actually, so from, from those two graphs, I think the conclusion is that it's not that trade leads to a tough stance on democracy, human rights, and the rule of law. But what we can say is the more prosperous a country, a European country, the more comfortable it certainly feels to address political values in its relations with China and not even high dependencies or interdependencies with China. So trade relations do not actually impact uh, that so much. It's, it's very much the prosperity. And if you feel comfortable, you will raise that issue no matter how closely you trade with China. When we, we also looked at investment gaps uh, and, and uh, whether China was investing in Europe and whether investments actually had a direct impact. There, uh, I would love to show you a similar graph, but uh, that would just be a confusing one because we don't find a clear relationship here. We look at specific countries, then yes, we do find it in specific cases, but not generally speaking. It's rather if a country has high hopes to receive future investments or if investments in particularly sensitive uh, economic sectors are in place, then you see that a lowering of commitment in political values, but there's no overall and general trend. So the third and final um, uh, aspect here to name is Chinese pressure. And indeed, you find a couple of examples. I, I think I should just remind of our neighboring country, Norway, uh, after Liu Xiaobo was awarded the Nobel Peace Prize in 2010, there was uh, uh, strong uh, reaction from China. Uh, there was a freeze of, uh, at least a partly, a freeze of economic and political relations. So some sort of retaliation here. And you see similar uh, stuff going on when countries welcome the Dalai Lamas, like France in 2008, Denmark in 2009, or the UK in 2012. Um, you find examples from Denmark and the Netherlands in the 1990s sponsoring uh, strong human rights resolutions in the United Nations Human Rights Council, and so on and so forth. And indeed, you can see a downgrading of political values. By the way, I should say, compared to the 1990s, you see that overall trend in almost all European countries, with very few exceptions. Um, but you see that also after such phases of retaliation from China. But it does not disappear from the agenda. So it, there's a limited impact uh, from Chinese pressure here. And that leads me to the second research question, uh, which I will be uh, briefer, uh, commenting briefer. Uh, and this is a Chinese impact in Europe. Well, certainly China has stepped up its efforts to influence European discussions on political values in recent years. Uh, I mean, uh, very lively discussion here in Sweden, but also in other countries have been on the opening of Confucius Institutes. Uh, but also, there's uh, we, another example would be the media presence. So you have paid advertisement in plenty of newspapers around the continent, or you have a Chin uh, Chinese TV channel in in English um, that is actually run by uh, CCTV, the state 
owned uh, TV channel in China. So you have those increased uh, efforts to impact the discussion. But when you look at the general perception in Europe, um, might be a bit difficult to go through all the numbers, and uh, uh, don't worry, I won't, but you can see that in almost all countries, uh, the perception of China is rather negative. So the successes actually have been rather limited. If you look at the media coverage, the non-Chinese, the Western media coverage, it's also rather negative and critical of China. And one example is, for example, is the, uh, is the uh, session of the National People's Congress last year um, when uh, it was announced that Xi Jinping uh, succeeded in his attempt to, to prolong uh, the possibility of staying as president of the People's Republic. So before, he had two term limits and, it, and, and this restriction to two term limits was lifted. And that was whether for, for, for rightly so or not, was uh, perceived by most media outlets in Europe as a sign of uh, um, st strengthening of uh, Chinese authoritarianism. And also, when you look at political elites throughout this continent, they have a most negative image of China, with a remarkable exception of some Eurosceptics. So what we find is Actually, in our discussions, we didn't find a single example of uh, political elite groups in Europe that were China-friendly and at the same time pro-European. We are not saying that all Eurosceptics are at the same time uh, uh, friends of China, but we see that there is a correlation. And uh, that's something I would add on. I think in many cases, that's also has also a correlation with how political elites see the U.S. If they rather admire the U.S., if they have a positive stance on U.S. leadership, they will probably not lean towards a friendly attitude towards China. And finally, let me just uh, conclude with saying, uh, despite this very limited impact so far uh, of Chinese efforts, you see impact on some European decisions, actual European decisions. And just, just let me name two of them. 2016, Europe reacted to uh, a ruling by the Permanent Arbitration Council in The Hague on a conflict in the South China Sea. And the, EU, the European Union actually suggested that Europe should react by stating that uh, China should uphold international law of the seas. And uh, a number of three countries, uh, namely Croatia, uh, Hungary, and Greece, watered that down to a statement that did not contain this clear message. And another and a second example would be in 2017 uh, in the UN Human Rights Council where Greece prevented with its veto that the European Union uh, took a unitary stance uh, to condemn human rights violations of China. And that was the very first time in Europe's history that it could not agree on such a resolution on item four within the United Nations Human Rights Council. So there are some implications. There are, is some impact on specific uh, decisions, particularly sensitive decisions for China. But overall, the success is rather limited. Thank you. Thank you, Tim. Um,
Thank you for this uh, overview and uh, this presentation of really interesting results, I think, uh, and sometimes surprising results as well. So um, I would have a couple of questions. Uh, now, one would be, um, when you talk about, we talk about both uh, the EU institutions in, in Brussels and we talk about various member states or the different member states. So what, over time, um, what influence has the uh, EU institutions ha had on individual member states um, uh, if, you, if you compare over time? Mm. In, in, their, in their position relating to the topic that we're discussing? Well, if you ask me for the impact of EU institutions on member states, I'd say rather limited. Uh, but that doesn't imply that the EU does not have, or EU institutions in Brussels don't have any impact at all on how Europe as such is approaching that issue. Um, but when we talk about the European Union, the EU institutions, I think we need to uh, clearly state what sort of institutions are we talking about. Uh, and let me differentiate very quickly three of them. One is the European Council. And the European Council is the institution that makes a decision on EU foreign and security policy, mainly. Uh, and the European Council consists of representatives of all EU member states, and it has to decide by consensus. And that implies, by just naming the differences of the different EU states, that you have the very same differences in Brussels. And for that, you could assume, well, is the EU then functioning at all in, in this issue? And I'd say, well, yes, to some extent. Um, I mean, there is this uh, practiced routine of finding compromises, of, of uh, traditional bargaining, of give and take. So, yes, uh, but obviously... EU member states rather impact here, the EU's position as such, um, and uh, water down rather as a, a principled stance from the EU side. If we talk about the European Commission, the second main actor in the EU framework, then we find sort of a duality here. On the one hand, a particular problem is uh, that, e that the European Commission's cooperation with China very much is, is very much fragmented in technical committees, in technical dialogues. That makes it extremely difficult for Europe to link issues. So sensitive issues are mostly addressed in the human rights dialogue and the legal affairs dialogue. But that has very little effect on, say, economic cooperation. So that's a huge uh, challenge here from the European Union side. And I think we have to make compliments to China here because China is administering this very fragmented cooperation much better than the Europeans do. At the same time, when you talk to many officials from the EU institutions, from the European Commission, you find a strong commitment, personal commitment to those values. So you, I would still say, well, they have some sort of impact here. And also beyond just the human rights or the legal affairs dialogue. And finally, the European Parliament has the least to say in foreign and security affairs. It serves kind of a watchdog function, very principled, uh, not very strategic, but very principled, reminding other EU institutions constantly of constitutive values of the European Union, among them human rights, democracy, and the rule of law. And 
finally, maybe to say, I think the impacts the European Union has is limited, is very limited. The question is also on a country like China, what kind of impact can you have? It's an extremely strong player. Um, at the same time, I think we do find sort of seeds that we that we uh, plant in China, and we do find some some limited successes there. Thank you, Tim. I think we will move on to Viking uh, and to get the Swedish angle on this, and then I'll return to you with some further questions. All right. Um, thank you very much, Henrik. Um, uh, as mentioned, my co-author couldn't be here, Anna Michalski, but I'll, I'll do my best to um, unpack the Swedish case for you. And I'm going to do this in three points. Um, first, I'll go over how Sweden has, in the last decade or so, worked with issues such as human rights and democracy in its relations with China. And uh, the central question here, it seems, has been how to uh, stand up for these values without upsetting China in a way uh, that could lead to uh, retaliation. Second, I'll give a brief overview of how China has become quite proactive in shaping uh, discussions in Sweden about these issues. Um, just in the last year or so. And third, I'll say something about the uh, results um, from this ETNC study and what they might mean for, for Sweden. So on the first point, um, Sweden's ambition to promote liberal values has translated into uh, three main types of, of activity. Uh, first, there has been a general diplomatic engagement through the MFA um, and the embassy uh, in Beijing which has regular contacts with uh, civil society actors um, and supposedly integrates uh, human rights in its outreach activities uh, in China. The MFA produces periodic reports on human rights, democracy, and the rule of law as part of a global initiative, um, the last of which was refuted by the Chinese side as biased and unfounded. Um, Sweden also endorses joint statements and letters uh, condemning um, China's human rights violation, uh, violations in the UN framework. Sweden has also sought to outsource uh, quite a bit of its activities on sensitive issues to the EU. On human rights in particular, it's now widely accepted in both government and parliamentary circles that um, the EU constitutes a crucial uh, platform for managing Sweden's relations uh, with China. There is, um, for example, the uh, EU-China Human Rights Dialogue, which is often referenced. Uh, the EU makes uh, regular statements on the human rights situation in China. Um, there are development cooperation programs, etc. Now, these activities are clearly not the product of Sweden's efforts alone, but they are often used by politicians to showcase um, that Sweden is working actively on these issues. Lastly, uh, Sweden's China policy also contains an ambition to uh, contribute to the development of human rights and democracy through cooperative projects. Um, Sweden channels development aid to some civil society organizations who are active in, in China, such as the uh, Raoul Wallenberg Institute, for example. Um, there is also a center at the embassy um, in Beijing uh, for corporate social responsibility, CSR, that works to promote uh, working conditions, uh, anti-corruption, um, environmental awareness, and human rights in business. 
so overall, uh, Sweden has been quite active by working through diplomatic channels, uh, cooperative projects, multilateral institutions. Um, these efforts have focused uh, mostly on less sensitive issues such as working conditions and, and uh, the environment. Um, and the government has been very careful at the same time not to criticize China in a way that could lead to uh, retaliation. Now, when politicians have been faced with calls from media and opposition, um, parties uh, for a more vocal, uh, critical and demanding approach with regards to China, they have uh, referenced these existing projects and EU initiatives saying, look, we're a small country and we're already uh, doing a lot. So in this way, they've been able to deflect criticism and sidestep um, potential friction in the bilateral relationship um, by avoiding to upset China. Um, so taken together, this has led us to describe uh, Sweden's uh, policy towards China on these issues as active but careful. If we move to the other side of this, um, China's efforts to promote its views and positions in Sweden. And here we've seen an unprecedented uh, public diplomacy campaign from the uh, Chinese embassy here in Stockholm, uh, starting in about mid-2018. So the embassy has issued a long list of statements on its website, responding to all sorts of uh, China-critical uh, articles and opinion pieces. Um, these statements brand uh, Swedish articles and opinions as, and I quote, biased, groundless, unfounded, and totally unacceptable. The topics range from the treatment of Uyghurs in Xinjiang to um, organ trade in China to the Belt and Road Initiative. The embassy has also sent letters to news outlets um, concerned, asking them to publish responses um, from, from the Chinese embassy, which some of them uh, have, have agreed to do. Now, at the forefront of this effort has been the Chinese ambassador himself. He's given interviews and several um, to several radio and TV shows and has also authored several opinion pieces. He appears to have taken as his mission to improve or even correct the uh, Swedish debate about uh, China. The embassy has repeatedly um, emphasized the need for an objective uh, view of China, uh, fact-based, uh, it needs to be free of bias, and I quote, media tyranny which is apparently being practiced by some Swedish actors here. And now, one of the main points of uh, disagreement between Sweden and China in uh, the last few years has been over the fate of Gui Minhai, a Swedish citizen and bookseller who has been held in China for over uh, three years now. Uh, Gui was associated with a bookstore in Hong Kong um, that published controversial books on China's leadership. In 2015, he mysteriously disappeared uh, from his holiday home in Thailand and only to um, reappear on Chinese state television in what appears to be a forced confession, confessing then to a number of, of different crimes. Wei was later released, only to be detained again in February last year. This time, it was on a train uh, right in front of Swedish uh, diplomats accompanying him. Um, Sweden and the EU have on several occasions called for his release, um, but the Chinese side here in Stockholm, they say that this is interference in China's uh, legal system, which is uh, handling this in uh, accordance with standard procedure. Um, 
Swedish journalists and academics have also been quite active in calling for uh, Mr. Guay's release, and the embassy has, has always been quick to respond. Um, it has issued several statements saying that uh, Guay Minhai is a criminal, that he has committed uh, severe crimes in both China and Sweden, and that he confessed uh, on Chinese state television uh, by his own will. Uh, now, uh, China's public diplomacy campaign does not appear to have succeeded in persuading Swedish actors that China is a benevolent state. Um, in fact, they have probably uh, been counterproductive by sparking negative reactions in the media and the general public. Um, the criticism of China's human rights records and the flaws of its political system um, appears to have increased. These, these developments have also coincided and probably um, reinforced a more general trend in Swedish society of becoming more critical of China. Uh, several important politicians, government representatives, uh, prominent business uh, people have been, become more outspoken about their misgivings uh, about China. Um, and this follows on from an international and European trend as well, where other countries are becoming more and more um, aware of the challenges emerging from, from China's uh, global ambition. Um, so overall, um, China's influence over Swedish opinion um, seems to be quite limited. Um, but that is not to say that this can't change in the future if Chinese actors learn from these setbacks um, and adapt propaganda tools to better fit the Swedish context. Now, what's interesting in this is that we haven't seen this type of confrontational and intense public diplomacy uh, campaign uh, anywhere else in Europe. Um, so there are several European observers here who are keeping an eye on the Swedish case to see what might uh, come in, in Europe-China relations more generally. So coming to the third point, uh, what does all of this mean for Sweden? Well, I think if we look at the map up here, you can see that Sweden is one of the most vocal and active states when it comes to promoting liberal values, um, but this does not in any way suggest that Sweden has done uh, enough. As I said, Sweden has, as most other countries, been very careful uh, promoting, they've been very careful not to upset China in any way. Um, and one has to remember here that, that this is taking place in a context where almost all European countries um, are becoming more careful and quiet uh, towards China as the country has grown uh, stronger. Also, the fact that Sweden ranks in the top tier here uh, does not suggest that Sweden has been using the right or the most effective methods. It is hard to know, for example, if these cooperative projects which I mentioned have had any real impact or if they are simply um, mostly for uh, a type of symbol for both um, the Chinese and the Swedish side. It is also possible that a more uh, demanding, proactive, and a publicly critical approach might have put pressure on China to adapt in, in Swedish, in specific areas. Now, Sweden is a small country, so you can't expect it to do all that by itself. But it is possible that in concert with like-minded states, the Nordic countries, uh, the European Union, the United States, perhaps Australia, um, the impact would have been uh, bigger. Another conclusion from the, from the general uh, report 
uh, is that trading a lot or receiving uh, big amounts of uh, investments from China does not necessarily lead countries to become any less, less critical. So China is Sweden's biggest trading partner in Asia, uh, but that doesn't mean that the government can't be frank when it comes to human rights. Let's remember here that China values good relations with Sweden um, and its trade with Sweden, just as Sweden values good relations with China. China also values good relations with the EU, of which um, Sweden is, of course, an important part. So let's not be afraid of trading with China. Let's focus more on how to trade with China while more effectively promoting uh, democracy and human rights, uh, because it's surely possible uh, to do both. Thank you. Thank you very much, Viking, uh, for providing us the, the Swedish uh, angle into this. Uh, now, I, I have a question regarding the, um, this um, sort of engagement with pub Swedish public discourse and public debate that we have seen. Uh, some of you have, might, might have seen the, the, the long interview on a Swedish news uh, uh, show uh, on Sunday with the uh, Chinese uh, ambassador. Um, and you, you mentioned that, that this is, uh, this is a, a sort of unique case in Europe in terms of that, uh, the level of engagement. Um, why is that? So um, I must say, first of all, that it's not, it's not quite unique, this approach um, of um, um, being very active. But, but the intensity of this approach is, and, and the, the nature of it is perhaps uh, unique uh, in Europe so far. To my knowledge, I haven't seen anything else. Um, but why is that? Um, well, there, there's been some speculation that it might be a uh, sort of an experiment to see how Sweden, a small country um, who is committed to liberal values, might react to, to this type of um, power politics, saying you're not allowed to, <clears throat> to do this and that, and how it plays out. Maybe China could, could learn from it as it engages with the rest of Europe. Um, and then there are other explanations that centers on, on the ambassador himself, um, who might have taken this as his own initiative. Um, so it's, it's, it's hard to know, and we're, we're speculating, of course. OK. Um, so I, I have one more question, but I'll keep it uh, to after uh, Nicolas' uh, presentation. Um, so um, now we'll get to uh, broaden the picture a bit um, and also get some views from across the Atlantic. Yes, exactly. Thank you. Can you all hear me? No? No? Okay, now I hear myself too. Um, yes, thank you very much, Henrik, and thank you uh, to my colleagues for two really interesting uh, presentations. So, um, as I was asked to step in for Anna Michalski, even though I haven't participated in this uh, report, but I've done so uh, previously with the ETNC, um, I thought it could be interesting to offer some uh, reflections on these kinds of issues in the US, uh, where, as you probably are aware of, not only the debate on economic relations with China is quite heated at the moment, 
but where also questions of uh, Chinese influence and interference are making headlines and also producing um, similar kinds of reports by think tanks and so on. So um, to start with a few more uh, general observations, um, political values, especially the ones named in the report, human rights, democracy, and the rule of law, do obviously play a huge role in US foreign policy in general. And especially um, the US Congress uh, has and continues to be quite outspoken on these questions, also uh, towards China. Um, and also what we have to keep in mind that um, the ideational or, um, if you will, ideological component of um, the US as a liberal democratic uh, capitalist state versus China as a communist one-party state has been a constant throughout history, even as uh, US-China relations have evolved quite a bit since uh, the Cold War. Um, for example, one of the main um, arguments or issues for the continued US support of Taiwan is um, that it is a successful Chinese democracy. Um, now, Congress and then successive administrations have developed many tools for promoting political values in China, and often these are deployed simultaneously, to only um, just mention a few ones. They include um, both what the report calls megaphone and also quiet diplomacy, uh, congressional hearings, legislation, funding for, uh, the rule of, for rule of law and civil society programs in China, also support for dissidents and pro-democracy groups, both in China and in the U.S., um, but then also, there have also been sanctions and um, uh, the U.S. has been coordinating international pressure. Another high-profile policy practice is um, the U.S. government issuance of congressionally mandated country reports, including reports, for example, on human rights and uh, religious uh, freedom. So to what extent then the president and his administrations are or have been active uh, on these issues has uh, varied quite a lot in the past. But a general pattern you see is that uh, presidential candidates tend to be uh, more outspoken and ready to accuse, for example, the, the sitting president in this case of uh, being too soft on China. So in the last presidential election campaigns and debates, we uh, heard quite a lot about China. And um, on the one hand, you could say that this was more related to US economic grievances, like the trade deficit, a loss of jobs, what we continue to hear today. Um, so related to China's economic policies. However, this whole debate on China's economy is uh, connected to a bigger and long-lasting debate in the United States and beyond. Um, and this is about the interconnection between economic and political freedom and liberalization. In other words, the argument that economic engagement with China will lead to its political liberalization. So, for example, in the ETNC report, um, the question was at times asked whether um, economic liberalism is or, or should be part of the political values. In the US, uh, you can say it certainly is because of this assumed uh, interconnection. Um, so this line, on the same, at the same time, this line of thinking has always also been very contested in the US, especially in Congress where, for example, those um, who are pushing for a more outspoken criticism of, of China, for example, on human rights, have accused uh, those putting forward the linkage between capitalism and democracy as just uh, furthering US economic interests. Um, and these critical voices are also present with the current administration. Um, for example, the 2017 National Security Strategy states that, and I quote, the United States helped expand the liberal economic trading system to countries that did not share our values 
in the hopes that these states would liberalize their economic and political practices and provide commensurate benefits to the United States, which, according to the National Security Strategy Assessment, has not happened. And in the strategy, um, the U.S. continues to, to announce continuing economic exchange with countries with, quote, shared values and uh, so-called like-minded states, um, again, talking about economic liberalism or democratic capitalism as a value which continues throughout um, the strategy. Um, now, as you know, President Trump is focusing full-scale on economic aspects when it comes uh, to China at the moment, and he has also been widely criticized for not placing emphasis on traditional political values, not only towards China. Um, but then also, paradoxically, his rejection of multilateral trade agreements and, and the protectionist approach is, of course, also at odds with everything uh, the U.S. has been taken to stand for as a champion of the liberal international order. Um, again, when it comes to political values in China, then the issue of uh, human rights, for example, is not among the so-called four pillars of the new U.S.-China comprehensive dialogue that was established during discussions between President Trump and President Xi at uh, Mar-a-Lago in April, April 2017. And in a speech to State Department employees in May 2017, then Secretary of State Rex Tillerson stated that, quote, guiding all of our foreign policy actions are our fundamental values, our values around freedom, human dignity, the way people are treated. But he also said, quote, if we condition too heavily that others must adopt this value that we've come to over a long history of our own, it really creates obstacles to our ability to advance our national security interests, our economic interests. So while in the past we have often seen um, a quite assertive U.S. Congress and maybe a more pragmatic president and administration, at the moment we do still see an assertive Congress, um, for example, on um, issues such as Xinjiang and Taiwan, but also um, in other parts of the administration um, there is still um, a more assertive approach, uh, I will come to that in a moment, whereas the president, despite of the ongoing trade disputes, basically continues to say um, Xi Jinping and I are friends and we will sort this all out. Um, however, when we look at uh, some central documents and further statements released by the administration, then we see a less friendly picture, so to speak. Um, for example, in um, his quite widely reported speech at the Hudson Institute, which is a conservative think tank in Washington, D.C., Vice President Pence sharply criticized China on its domestic situation regarding societal surveillance, the free flow of information, religious freedom, its support of authoritarianism abroad, and its pressure on third parties not to recognize Taiwan, but also on its economic policies towards the U.S. and elsewhere. Um, Penn spoke about the U.S. vision of the so-called free and open Indo-Pacific as, quote, building new bonds with nations that share our values across the region. Um, while he also said that America is reaching out our hand to China, he uh, continued to speak about the administration resetting America's strategic and economic relationship with China. And the already mentioned national security strategy calls China and also Russia a revisionist power that wants to shape a world antithetical to U.S. values and interests. And this argument, of course, feeds into the broader debate we are having right now um, about the future of the liberal international order, 
where China, but ironically also the US under Trump, are seen as potential disruptors. Um, there was another widely publicized report recently on uh, Chinese influence and American interests that was released by the um, Hoover Institute at Stanford University in 2018. And most of the um, prominent China scholars in the US participated in it. And also this uh, report does speak about the need to uh, protect what they call basic core American values, norms and laws. And named are, for example, uh, transparency, openness, and freedom. Uh, what the report also does, however, is um, it warns against exaggerating the threat of the Chinese initiatives looked at. For example, they state that China has not interfered in the national election in the US, unlike assertions made by the vice president in the cited speech. Um, and there's also a final dissenting opinion by Professor Susan Shirk, one of the scholars involved in the report, who states that she, um, what she calls respectfully disagrees with, quote, the report's overall inflated assessment of the current threat of Chinese influence seeking on the United States. So um, this kind of shows that even for the uh, academic and scholarly community, um, to deliver or accomplish a balanced assessment in the current political climate seems uh, quite difficult and an increasingly fine line to walk. And I think um, this is something we can maybe um, further discuss and that I think the ETNC report is actually a, a quite good and successful example of because you could give a quite detailed and, and diverse picture. Um, but uh, I would myself be curious about to hear um, more about your background uh, discussions on these kinds of issues. Thank you very much. Thank you so much, Nicola. Uh, before we uh, get back to that last question of yours, which I think is, uh, is a really important question to, to discuss, um, I just want to ask you, sometimes when we listen to some of the representatives from uh, the U.S. administration and uh, some of the thinkers within the strategic community, there seems to be a sort of a, um, divergent, I mean, that there seems to be a divergent approach to China if we compare uh, the U.S. approach and the European approach. And um, so how big is that shift, uh, the, that rift, and how much is it an issue, you think, uh, from the American perspective? Um, I think that probably depends a little bit on the issue, um, on the issue area looked at. So um, what I find quite interesting at the moment is when you look at um, the US approach towards uh, investment in high technology. So they are taking a quite hard stance on Huawei, for example, and they are putting pressure on certain European countries to take the same position. And um, I honestly don't know how that is going so far, and maybe whether you have uh, you have some insights there, or whether uh, you know what, how this pressure um, on the side of the EU is is received. But then, of course, also when it comes to economic issues, mostly I think the um, I mean the the US is, is criticized for not uh, teaming up with the EU to pressure China on these issues. But some of the economic measures the US has taken have actually has actually hurt. Uh, certain European countries when it comes to steel and so on. So um, I don't think they have been very successful, also because of the critical stance towards the Trump administration in general right now. So um, I would say it's, uh, it's a bit of a delicate issue. I don't know. 
And uh, finally, then, before opening up, if we should, uh, um, I th which I think we should, pick up that last uh, question, so question of yours um, to all of the panelists. When, when issues become politicized, um, it is uh, um, putting um, scholars, journalists, and others uh, participating in, in public discourse in, in a new kind of position. So, how would you, how would you yourself um, assess this? And is it difficult to navigate uh, when when writing and researching these issues? Yeah, if you start. Um, yeah, well, let, let me say two things. Let me say first, say something on behalf of ETNC, and then maybe make a personal comment here. I think when you look at the network itself, uh, it's quite straightforward. I don't think it's a particular issue for the network as such, in the sense that each of the authors from all of the countries is responsible for his or her own assessment. So uh, whether I subscribe to what Viking has said about Sweden or not uh, is not really relevant, or at least I see it as his work. He's responsible for it. That does not imply that I'm not agreeing with you, but I'm saying uh, th that's really a matter for each and every country. Where the discussions start, of course, is when it comes to the introduction, when, you, when we try to compare different patterns from different countries. Um, and there, I can assure you, there is discussion, lengthy discussions. Uh, and when I say lengthy discussions, we're talking about weeks, if not two months, um, of email exchanges, of course, with different wordings of a meeting in between of two days, where we basically discuss uh, a chapter of 10, 15 pages. So you can assume if you have two eight-hour working days discussing most of the time, 10 pages, you can uh, assume how much is discussed uh, of each and every word. So that's that's an issue, obviously. But again, I mean, you rely sort of on the data that is provided by all the countries. So within the ETNC, there is this challenge, but I think to a limited extent. Uh, on a personal note, um, yeah, I mean, it, it, it certainly is a difficulty uh, to navigate in such a polarized uh, atmosphere, I'd say. Uh, also with uh, China taking a tougher stance here. I personally, I mean, after all, you, you never know. But I mean, let, let me maybe say two things. One is, um, after all, if you're a researcher, uh, you mean... We definitely no one knows what the truth is. There's probably not such a thing. Well, you should be committed to report as uh, most as accurate as possible. Come to that sort of ideal of a truth as best as possible. And I don't see. And after all, a researcher, I think, is not a human rights activist. Is not. Uh, I, I, I as a citizen, as a person, I'm committed to all those three values. Uh, but first and foremost, as a researcher, I am there to report what is happening in China. Um, and this is not whether it, whether people in Beijing will like it, the government will like it or not, or whether people in Europe like it or not. And just let me give you one example maybe here. I, th I personally f find that when traveling and researching in China, I would love to see more support for democracy, for electoral democracy among the Chinese people. I just don't see it. So I also find it a bit difficult uh, to advocate that very actively 
while at the same time, if you ask me whether there's a demand for legal certainty, the rule of law, basic human rights, and I see a much stronger case uh, in China for those values. And that's something I report back, whether, whether the people who read my research will like it or not. Maybe leave it here for the moment. You want to comment? Uh, me? Yeah. Sure. So um, I um, I obviously agree with what you said about you know I agree with what Tim said about the role as a as a researcher um, um, and um, I don't think that I have experienced any difficult situations in particular so far. However, um, I am a bit um, concerned. I would say about that um, regarding the topic um, we are discussing. It seems a little bit like the discursive space right now for cautioning against what uh, Susan Shirk called inflated threat assessments is, uh, is shrinking a little bit because it seems like um, in the general debate we went from this one kind of expectation or certainty by we, I mean we in the West more broadly, um, that we were so much invested in, uh, to put it simply, that China will become more like us. And now, um, if we look at the commentaries, this seems to be giving place to kind of a new certainty, which is like, oh, now we were wrong. But it is actually um, China's fault because uh, they were cheating on us, and and now um, this is moving into uh, like completely into the other direction. And these kinds of binary interpretations they seem to leave very little room for actually um, taking the the very contingent nature of these kinds of developments into account, um, where there's not just two ways and one is forward and the other is backward. Um, but then, of course, you also have to say that, on the other hand, many of, of, of China's policies um, are also making it increasingly difficult to prevent legitimate concerns from being perceived or, or then uh, turned into uh, threat assessments. Um, so, yeah, on, somehow this is, of course, also part of the discipline and, and subject matter we are dealing with and will continue to deal with. Thank you. Speaking, and then I can say something very, very briefly. Um, just, I agree completely that it's a, it's very difficult to to navigate if if you're a researcher in these these environments. And uh, there's also a risk of of um, when you're studying a particular country, you see the problems and difficulties with that country's better um, than anyone else. So for people studying China uh, and pointing out the uh, flaws of the Chinese. Uh, political current situation, etc. It's easy to be branded as um, anti-China, etc. As is the same, the same is true for people studying the United States. So that's... Um... All right, everyone. It has been a, a, a very fruitful one and a half hour. And I would like you all to give uh, um, an applause to our panelists. And thank you so much to all of you for coming for this seminar, and we hope to see you soon again. Find us on www.ui.sc. We are also on Facebook and on Twitter with UI Sweden. And we're also on YouTube, where you can watch our seminars and interviews.